Exodus 15, and then I'm going to start at verse 22. Uh, This follows on from last week's sermon where we've come through the Red Sea and we've sung songs of celebration, and uh, we're going to hear what happens next. Then Moses led Israel from uh, from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they travelled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them, and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month, after they had come out of Egypt, in in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. And that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening, you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes, like frost on the ground, appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. Uh, 1631. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come, so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, 
Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to the land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. An omer is one-tenth of an ephah. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, travelling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarrelled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and they called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil, things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will always provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my friends, flee from idolatry. Morning, folks. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Matthew. I'm associate pastor here. Uh, really glad you're here. If you're new, um, we're going to have a look at the uh, the, the book of Exodus, um, but we're going to do it um, through the New Testament. So leave your Bible open to one Corinthians ten, where we just read. If you've got it open, that's really helpful. Um, and let me pray as we look at the Bible together. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us the Bible so that we can get to know you. Please help us to know you better as a result of today. Help us to know your word better and I pray you'd help us to know what it means to trust in you as our provider and our guide as we journey to the promised land. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, friends, have a think for a sec. What's the Bible about? You're only allowed one word. 
Apparently, I'll have one word. One of the kids down here said that earlier. That's not, it's, it's simple as anything, isn't it? It's actually really profound because I'm going to then ask you, um, now demonstrate it. We just read 15 chapters of Exodus over the last few weeks. Go through it chapter by chapter. How's that about Jesus? I don't see him in it. It's actually um, a very, very um, deep statement as well. The whole Bible is about Jesus. Um, We've been learning about God in Exodus. I want to show you today, kind of zoom out a little bit and show you how the whole Bible is about Jesus as well, how the book of Exodus is teaching us about Jesus. Um, let me recap uh, where we've been so far. Get this thing working. Um, so we've been looking at this part of the world. There's the Sinai Peninsula. There's Egypt, the top left. And there is Canaan. That's the promised land. Should just label it the promised land, really. Um, and we've met uh, Israel in Egypt, um, in slavery to Egypt, uh, Egypt is doing awful things to them, and they've been crying out in their slavery for help. And so God recruited this guy Moses at a bush that burned but didn't burn up. We call it the burning bush because it just kept burning. And God spoke to him and said, I'm God. I'm going to rescue my people out of Egypt to be my own people, and they're going to come back to this mountain. That's important because that's where they're journeying over this, this sermon, basically. They're journeying to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, uh, both names of the same place. Now, God introduced his name to Moses. Can anybody remember what the name was? Yahweh. What does Yahweh mean? Harder question. I'll be who I will be. Yeah, yeah. So I, we introduced this idea of a God box. Everybody has in their brain this little compartment called a God box, or I call it a God box, and you toss all your ideas about God in there, and whatever is in there, that's your idea of God, what he's like, how, how he acts, how he relates to us, all that sort of stuff. And God says, well, let's label the box Yahweh. That's Yahweh in Hebrew. It feels really authentic, doesn't it? The name on the box is Yahweh. That's God's name. And he says, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. And what that's saying is, it comes up, he says, God, can you just sort of summarize in a sentence who and what you are? He goes, no, nah, it doesn't work that way. I'm more complicated than that. I will be who I will be. Watch and listen as I act, as I speak, as over time I introduce myself to my people. It takes time. You need a great deal of experience of knowing this God to get to know him because there's more to him than just you know, one summary, uh, one summary sentence. Watch his words and deeds in history. Get to know this God. So we've been watching in Exodus some of the really foundational words and deeds of, of what uh, God has done to introduce himself to mankind. So he sent Moses, uh, armed with a bunch of plagues, the power to do these plagues, to Egypt to introduce himself to Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't care about this Yahweh God. Well, soon he is. Because he, uh, he does these ten plagues, uh, there's some pretty awful ones, ranging from turning the waters to blood, which would make me listen, but it doesn't. Um, they do ten plagues in the end to show this is the real God. The gods of Egypt are nothing. <laughs> Only the real God can do that, and you best pay attention to what he says. Eventually they get set free. Uh, we heard last week, God parts the sea. The cloud actually comes down, the cloud symbolising God's presence comes down, settles between the Egyptian army pursuing Israel. They end up deciding we want our slaves back, so they chase them. They're trapped in the sea. God parts the sea. Israel passed through, and the water just collapses in the Egyptian army and wipes out the best troops in the world of the greatest nation in the world. And nobody is any doubt that this is the real God if they're actually watching and listening. You learn a lot of lessons. We have been learning lessons. Um, God's personal relational. He speaks to his people and wants to relate to them as their God. He wants them to say, Yahweh is my God. I will trust him. Not just vague God over there, my God. He's a God over all creation, though. He's greater than any other so gods, and he's the judge of all. All will have to answer to him. But as we heard last week, Israel discovered for the first time really in the Bible 
This God is the saviour of his people. He's not distant, he doesn't just stay away. He gets in the nitty-gritty of life and grabs a people for himself and saves them from sin and death to be his very own forever. So what's all that got to do with Jesus? I haven't heard Jesus. Well, it's all got to do with Jesus. Um, the Bible insists on it, and you've read one Corinthians, we heard 1 Corinthians 10 read, and it's really weird. Um, read 1 Corinthians 10, just have a look. It says, have a look at chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. And he's claiming that these things we read in the first Bible reading are actually about Jesus. It says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, so he's talking to Christians, people in our position, that our ancestors, the Israelites, were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. The seas parted, they passed through. They were all baptised into Moses. We'll come back to that, it's a bit weird, isn't it? In the cloud, in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. And then it gets really wacky, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. I read the text, I don't see Jesus mentioned. It's what's going on. (laughs) It seems pretty odd now the whole bible is about jesus and his christian readers we need to have confidence i want you to be able to be christians people who read the bible if i can it's approximately there who don't just live in this bit up here that's how much the new testament is and god has given us this much as well and it's all about jesus and we need to be able to approach it with confidence parts of it need to become precious to us the parts that we'll turn to in comfort in difficult times parts that will instruct us and train us in what it means to be a disciple in Jesus because that's what it's about. And I want us as Christians to be confident in that and be growing in that sense. I can read Exodus and I get to know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and I get to understand who Jesus is better and where I'm heading, my heavenly home. I'm going to make you think for a minute. Now, if you want more on how to read the Bible as, as a Christian book, this book's up the back. It's eight bucks. It's really good. Pick it up. There's my three-second plug. Um, how's the whole bible about jesus well the whole old testament is a big giant setup that's how it's all about jesus god is setting up and preparing the way for the coming of his son jesus this is basically the structure of the bible the old testament is a promise lots of promises and the new testament is the fulfillment that those promises head towards that's that's the bible in a nutshell it's all about jesus but it's not just like promises like i will give you a savior god does do that but it's so much more than that there's symbols examples patterns that you get used to you start understanding you see things in the bible and jesus does similar things and by knowing the old testament version you can understand jesus um let me explain for a sec here's the uh the technical bit it's called typology uh the old testament sets up types which are just examples or patterns historical things that really happened but they point forward to Jesus and teach us about what Jesus is about. And when you read the New Testament, you can only understand it because of what the Old Testament's already told you. We saw an example two weeks ago. Um, the centre of the New Testament is the death of Jesus Christ, right? Well, if you've thought about this a lot, you might think it's so obvious what that's about. It's not obvious at all. And without the Old Testament, you wouldn't have a clue. It's just a Jewish guy getting killed by Roman authorities in 33 AD. So what? Lots of people were crucified. What's it about? You can't actually say unless you've got the Old Testament. See, two weeks ago, we heard that Israel had a Passover lamb. Uh, They were told the judge is coming to judge whoever hasn't got blood over their doors. So offer a substitute. Kill a lamb, put its blood over the door, and judgment will pass by you and your household. And all the New Testament needs to say then is when Jesus turns up, is Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. See, it's not like they promised anything. But you see this picture of what salvation looks like? 
and the apostle just go, Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And immediately people understand. So in the final judgment, eternal death will pass me by if I'm trusting in him because he's Passover lamb for my sins. Let me give you a... uh, The the Old Testament has heaps of this sort of stuff. And so Exodus, as it fills up our God box, uh, is trying to prepare us to to understand Jesus. Um, Let me give you a funny example. Uh, This is a prophet later in the Bible than Exodus. It's looking back to Exodus. Read what it says. It says, When Israel was a child, this is God speaking, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. What's it about? It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? It's saying back in Exodus, God loved Israel and decided to make them his kid and drew them out of Egypt. He parted the sea, made them his own people. It's obvious, isn't it? Well, the Bible says it's about Jesus. Uh, History repeats itself. Patterns keep happening and you understand what Jesus is about. King Herod was trying to kill babies just like Pharaoh was. He was trying to get Jesus and Jesus fled. His parents (laughs) fled. sent a warning in a dream and this is what it said. It said, so Joseph got up, took the child Jesus and his mother during the night and they left for Egypt. It's just the irony of what's going on, where they stayed until the death of Herod to escape the death of firstborns, very much like Moses. And so they fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. Wait a minute, I thought Hosea was about Israel way back in the past. No, it's preparing the way for Jesus. It's a pattern of how God acts. You, you see it over and over again. The things that Israel does, Jesus comes along and you go, that guy's a true Israelite. What they did in part, he does for real. Where they failed, he succeeds. He's the true Israelite. He's the Israelite who fulfills God's will and really introduces God to the world where they failed to do so. Now let's do a really weird bit. You saw in your Bible reading there, uh, baptism, right? Have a look at verse 2. What on earth does that mean? That generation were baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Straightforward. (laughs) We heard last week, the sea parted, Israel went through on dry ground. They didn't get wet. <laughs> How's that baptism? We're used to baptism being like a religious kind of ceremony, kind of act. Just the person gets wet, it always involves getting wet, and it shows that they've become a Christian. Israel didn't get wet. And so you go, what, what on earth is that about? How is that about baptism? Well, let's, let's make it weirder and t- toss something else into the mix. Uh, this is what 1 Peter 3 says, and it says Noah was a baptism as well. God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, and in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolises baptism that now saves you also. Wait a minute, Noah was in a boat for crying out loud. He didn't get wet. How is it about baptism? You see what I mean? It, it, it gets very confusing. It's about Jesus, it's about Christian baptism. I, I really don't get it. Here's the idea. Friends, in the Bible... Baptism is about salvation through judgment. It's a water symbol. It is about salvation happening through judgment. There's a picture of the Exodus. All baptism is like this, really. On the far side, the side I used to be on is slavery to sin and death. On the other side is new life under God. And as I pass through the water, it's that decisive change from one side to the other and there's no going back because it's salvation through judgment. Death occurs on the way through. Only by judgment does the effect of what baptism symbolises come about. And it's, it's throughout the Bible. You might be a bit surprised how much baptism is in the Bible. Let me give you some of the highlights. First page of the Bible, this theme starts. They don't call it baptism, but it's the same idea, the same picture. God separates the water from the land to make way for life. 
Noah. Uh, at the flood, the world was judged, while Noah's family was saved in the ark through the judgment by water. At the Red Sea, the Egyptian army was judged, whilst the people of Israel were saved through that judgment by water. Now the point of what the Bible's getting at with this stuff. Jesus called his death a baptism. He says to his disciples, I'm getting baptised and you can't be baptised the way I'm about to be baptised. I'm getting baptised uniquely in, in Mark 10.38. See, at the cross, Jesus was judged so that everybody who believes in him, who's baptised, can have judgment passed them by and can have life. So that's what baptism symbolises for Christians. We're in Christ, the old life's behind us, it's, it's no longer part of me, and I've got a new life to live. I've passed through the waters. That's what baptism symbolises. There's a decisive break with the old. That old me is not me anymore. In Jesus, there's a new me because he was judged in my place and I passed through the judgment that he's done for me and I have new life under Jesus to live forever. And then weird bits of the Bible can't make sense suddenly. Uh, Romans chapter 6. We who are those who died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the, uh, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now, it's a bit wordy, but basically you see what's going on. Jesus died. The judgment fell on him. With him we die. Our old, our old self's gone. And we live a new life. We come through the water. We get out the other side. That's why people, when they're baptised, they go down in the water, they die with Christ, they come up out of the water to new life. It's salvation through judgment. Now, why did I do that rather long sidetrack? Well, because Israel's just been baptised. That point, that ocean crossing, is the start of a new life for Israel. It's the start of a journey. It's a permanent boundary between their old life of slavery and their new life under God, with God as their guide, heading them towards the promised land. And you've got to imagine, don't you, as the Red Sea closes up and the Egyptian army drowns, and they sing songs of praises and they finally die down. And they notice for the first time the haunting quiet of the wilderness where there just isn't life. And for the first time they realise, well, we've got a new story. The old's done away with, but what's this new life? Is it worth having? What's it look like? Will God, this sea-parting God, want to have anything to do with this anymore? Well, they're on their way to Sinai to learn about it. That's where God is leading them through Moses and onward to the promised land. And if you haven't got the symbol yet, the promised land is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, that's what it symbolises. Um, and so this is our journey. If you're a Christian person, from your conversion, symbolised in baptism, if you haven't been baptised, get baptised, by the way. Talk to us. We'd love to baptise you. Stuart, we'd love to baptise. But any a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you haven't been baptised, talk to us. Because you should be. Because it marks that. The old's gone for me. I'm in Jesus. And I've got a new life to live. And I'm on a journey now to the promised land. And God is my guide, he's my protector, and he will see me there for certain. You may not have noticed, but this is actually built into the way we think about our church here. If you've been here for a while, you'll have seen this thing. Uh, this is the journey, <laughs> the right-hand side. That's what it's about. Uh, have you guys got brochures there uh, in, inside your Bible? Yeah? Open the front cover of your Bible and there should be a brochure there. You can open it up and you'll see the thing. Um, if you haven't got one yet, take it home. Have a look at it. It's really a vision of how we see the Christian life working, how we're trying to live as disciples of Jesus together as a church. Um, now, on the left-hand side, we talk, Stuart talked about earlier, giving the message of new life is what it's labelled. So it's talking to people who don't know Jesus yet 
and tr- it's steps to explaining to them what Jesus is about and challenging them to trust in him and find salvation in Jesus, the Passover lamb, so they can be saved from the judgment. And so it goes, we connect with people, we want to care for them, communicate clearly about who Jesus is and what he's done. And finally, we invite people to repentance from their sins, faith in Jesus, and baptism. <laughs> Why? Well, because the opposite side is living your life for Jesus, and you can only do that if you pass from death to life. That's what baptism symbolises. That, that's how it works. You move from, we call people to trust in Jesus and, and symbolise that in baptism and you move to the other side and now you start a journey. Faithful, adventurous, compassionate, enduring disciples, enduring to the end, to the kingdom of God. That's what the journey look, looks like. We're called to be disciples of Jesus who are faithful, adventurous, compassionate and the final one's really important, who get there. Because what we're going to learn today, the reason that value is there in our church uh, brochure is because of a passage like uh, Exodus 15 to, 7, uh, to 18. It's because some people don't make it. And we've got their example to say that we should heed that. I mean, that's what 1 Corinthians 10 just told us, isn't it? Have a look at your Bible there. Um, verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, for you, for us, for Christians on whom the culmination of the ages has come. It's the promise that the New Testament's a fulfilment of. It's the picture that teaches us what it means to follow Jesus and to walk from baptism to the promised land. So today we're going to have a look briefly at uh, the journey Israel took. I should point at the screen, really. Um, from, the, uh, from the Red Sea, where they were baptised into God's way, into the name of Yahweh, and they started their journey towards uh, Mount Sinai, where they'll reach next week. Well... I'll reach at the end of the book that Stuart will talk about it next week. Friends, as we read it, where is Israel? You're on the journey. Uh, you might as well stand in their shoes and be very serious about what's going on because you are in their shoes if you're a Christian. Uh, you are on a journey from baptism to the promised land if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, I recommend starting on the journey because the destination is worth getting to. Stand in their shoes because you are in their shoes. Turn back to Exodus chapter 15. Please, I should say please. We're going to go through some of this and see what we can learn about what it means to be disciples of Jesus, disciples who endure from baptism to promised land. What's chapter 15 to 18 about? It's about God testing Israel. The word testing keeps coming out in every chapter. God is training Israel to know what it means to follow him, to know what it means to travel to the promised land with him. Uh, He has one lesson to teach him on the way, ladder to our God box. God is the companion, guide and provider for his people on the journey to the promised land. That's what God's got to teach him on the journey and to to us on the journey because remember it was written down for us so that we'd know how to travel. We need to learn that God is our companion, our guide and our day-by-day provider for us on our journey to the promised land. And this, that, that isn't just like something you remember. That's your lived experience. That's got to be what it feels like. That's what it's got to be what you do each day. It's got to be daily. I trust in God. I'm asking him for provisions. God doesn't say make your own way. He's our companion and guide. He doesn't say find your own provisions. He assures his children of every provision they need for the journey. And so we're called to learn daily trust in the hard 
cold experience of life to make sure we get there. Because life is very unpredictable. The road is often quite long and there's lots of dangers. And if you face it without God, it's not a journey. It's just a random stroll in the wilderness for nothing. And slavery in Egypt looks pretty good again at that point if God isn't at your side. You don't recognize God is at your side. Think about what it looked like to Israel. They're forgetting God is what we're finding. They're not doing this journey as if God's with them. Here's how the journey appears to Israel, because they're judging completely by what's in front of their eyes. They forget that God's with them. He's just done all this amazing stuff. This is the Sinai Peninsula, like it's a 3D model of it. You can see it's very mountainous. It's very dry and arid terrain. Uh, God isn't with us, all right? It's just us and the road. Well, it looks like that. It looks like that. It looks like that. There isn't a whole lot of water. There isn't a whole lot of anything. It's horrible. And there's a destination, and that looks pretty horrible. That's Mount Sinai, and it's a big rock at the end of a journey of rocks. This is what the journey looks like without God by your side, with just living it by what's in front of your face. You're in the wilderness, and Moses, this idiot's led us here. It must must be an idiot. It must be his fault, because if God's not around, it's not a journey anywhere anymore. But surely, I mean, Israel's seen the plagues, haven't they? They've, seen, they've just passed through the Red Sea. How long are they get? It's going to be a long time, surely, before they doubt God. Well, it lasted three days. It lasted three days. We'll just zoom in a bit here. <laughs> After all they'd seen, they follow the cloud. They go down to a place called Marah, which uh, you can call it sewer if you like. I mean, it just means bitter water. Um, so they, they come to a place called sewer. Uh, and the water, naturally, is sewerage. It's not very nice. It's bitter. It's horrible. Um, and they whinge and they bicker and they forget God's with them and has promised to provide for them. Um, so they complain. And at no point in the journey do they ask God for help. They just whinge at Moses. God isn't part of the picture for them. There's me, there's Moses, there's the wilderness. That's it. And so, naturally, if God's not part of the picture, they attack Moses. And, friends, it's tempting to see this whole thing as kind of a, um, you know, every parent's favourite game of are we there yet? Um, It's not a game of are we there yet, and here's why. Israel isn't quite convinced yet that there's a driver in the car. They haven't been convinced yet, though what they've seen. They they whinge, they bicker. Well, God responds kindly anyway. He gets Moses to throw a bit of wood in the water. It turns to good drink. He does another water miracle because he can, and they drink, and they're happy. And then they keep going, and just around the corner there's a basically a massive spring called Elam, an oasis in the desert that God's been heading them to. And I wonder if they got the message. Uh, hey, if we just kept going, if we just trusted God, then we would have provided for us. I don't think they got the message. Have a look at chapter 15, verse 26. God's testing them. What's the uh, training he's doing for them? Verse 26, he says, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what's right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees... I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. God's preparing them for Sinai. He's preparing them to be a people who will serve him and joyfully obey his law, because they'll be confident that he's their provider, he's their companion, he does good for them, so listen to him. They don't seem to get the message. They keep going. They come to a place called the wilderness of sin. It's not actually like sin as in bad stuff. It's really just shorthand for Sinai because it's getting into the region of Mount Sinai. Um, They get to the desert of sin uh, and they come out with outright ridiculous charges against God and Moses. Have a look at chapter 16, verse 3. There's two, sorry. Uh, Grumbling continues. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, listen how absurd this is. 
If only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. I'm sure that's not true, actually, but anyway. But you brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. God isn't part of the picture. There's just me, the desert, and this idiot Moses that somehow convinced us to come here and somehow parted some seas. I don't think they're thinking about that. Again, God responds by providing for them, (laughs) even though they're not asking for it, even though they're not trusting him. Uh, he gives them manna, which is basically this uh, its, it's uh, miraculous bread that just appears on the floor of the desert. Uh, and he provides quail, a bird, each evening. Now, they're crying out for meat, right? But the meat isn't the focus of the passage. If you read it through later, you notice it doesn't talk about the quail a whole lot because that's what Israel wanted. And God is actually teaching them what it means to trust in him. And manna is kind of the prop. It's the main thing that points forward to Jesus. That's the thing God wants to focus on uh, as you read it. Uh, they need to learn it's miraculous bread. That means it comes straight from God. It's not just a fluke. It doesn't just fly in from the south like the birds do or wherever they come from, from the ocean. Um, and it tastes like the promised land. They're going to Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. They taste this stuff. Uh, in verse 31, it was white like coriander and seed and it tasted like wafers made with honey. It tastes like the promised land. It gives them a foretaste of what they're heading towards. And God's training them to know them as his, know him as their provider. They're complaining about lack of food. Well, here's how it's going to work. In the morning, I'll give you enough food for today. And then at the end of the day, it will be the same problem again. Because tomorrow, I will provide for you again. And the next day, the same. At the end of each day, you will have no food. It'll be the same problem. But through this process, hopefully you'll learn to trust me. Hopefully you'll learn what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Give us today our daily bread. God's teaching Israel and us to trust in God for our day-to-day needs, each day. You can't go a day without God because you're on the journey and God provides for you day by day and you go days without God and suddenly the journey becomes me, the wilderness, and somebody like Moses to blame because God isn't part of it anymore. But the people aren't satisfied with any of that. They won't obey and so we keep trekking. Israel's final... uh, Jesus is the bread of life. You want to read John chapter 6? I'm not going to go into that... Uh, right now, but basically it points forward to Jesus, the bread who comes from heaven, who everybody who believes in him, who feeds on him, gets eternal life. They, they have their needs provided for for the journey. Uh, read John 6 later if you want to uh, hear about that. Um, okay, so Desert of Sin, we keep going. Final stop is a place called Rephidim, which is about to be renamed because of the awful things that happened there. Comes up to chapter 17. And this is one of the landmark moments in the history of Israel. Verse 2, they continue whinging. So they quarreled with Moses and they said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Remember, God was testing them. He was training them. Now they're trying to train and test God. Why are you testing God to see if he'll put up with you no matter what you do? Well, he won't. Verse 3, but the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses and they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? It's escalated really severely. Um, Moses fears for his life at this point. Um, They have gone from grumbling right down to quarrelling and outright demanding quite violently. Moses is scared. Uh, And still it's like God doesn't exist. They don't ask God for water. They don't ask Moses to ask God for water. It's just me and the desert. They have no Godward orientation in their life at all. Again, God responds generously. 
He gets Moses to strike the rock with his staff and water rushes out for the people. But this is the beginning of the end for this generation of Israel. This is the beginning of the end for people who won't live day by day on the journey, trusting in Jesus for their provision. Have a look at verse 7. And this is the landmark. They renamed the place. They called it Massa and Meribah. Uh, If you look in your footnote, Massa means testing and Merah means quarrelling. Imagine that place name. It's on the map. It reminds you what happened. This place here is called whinging at God. And this, like you get the point. This is literally a landmark. He called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Sure, we haven't seen any evidence that he is among us or not. Outright rejection of him. It's absolutely astonishing. And friends, this is one of the saddest black marks on Israel's history. And it's the thing the Bible keeps pointing to. And to Christians, read Hebrews 4, read Psalm 95, read 1 Corinthians 10, which we did before. Keeps on pointing back to this and say, well, if you think you're standing strong, watch that you don't fall. Don't you realize that entire generation were baptized? They started the journey, well, they didn't make it. This is, if you like the sports analogy, um, this is St. George's first game of the season, where you realize that the end of the season isn't going to be good, uh, because they're not good this year. Uh, that's the first point at which you go, the season started and we know they're not going to make it. Don't harden your hearts and rebel like Israel did at Massa and Meribah. Trust in God who is your provider, who's your guide on the journey. Hold on to him. Now you can read chapter, the, the end of that chapter for yourself sometime. The Amalekites attack uh, Israel at Ref, uh, how do you say it? Rephidim. Uh, you can read about that yourself. And God protects them and enables them to win the battle quite in quite an extraordinary way, a very extraordinary way, actually. Um, read it later. But we get to chapter 18. And Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, turns up. Now, back at the burning bush, Moses was looking after some sheep. They were Jethro's sheep. Moses was working for him. And Jethro's just gone back to Midian. See on the map, Midian down there uh, uh, on the uh, right-hand side. That's where Jethro lives. Uh, the whole book is about God introducing himself to the world. At the beginning, Moses walks up to Pharaoh and says, Yahweh says, let the people go. And Pharaoh's response is, who is this Yahweh and why should I care? You get to the other side of the sea and words spread everywhere. And Jethro is running out to meet them to say, you've got to tell me more about this amazing thing that your God did. It's such a contrast with the people who are actually with God. Come to chapter 18, verse 9, and listen how Jethro responds. And he's the only one that gets it right. Well, besides Moses, I suppose. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord, who has rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh, and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods. If only Israel would say that. For he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, bought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God in gratitude and worship to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. Now I know this is the real God. If only Israel would say that. And now they're on their way to Mount Horeb. They'll meet God next week. And they simply aren't ready to meet him. They really aren't. Uh, Nothing could prepare them for that. Jethro, I think, 
would fare a lot better. Friends, we've been seeing that God is a companion and guide for his people on the journey to the promised land, right? That's us. The promised land is in the future. You have not arrived yet. See to it that you do. We need to see to it for each other that we do. And in case you missed it, the book of Exodus, though, doesn't just introduce us to God. And this matters for the journey. It doesn't just introduce us to God. We've learnt these things about God. We've certainly learnt that he's the companion guide and provider for his people as they head towards the promised land. But we've actually opened a new box in our brain. Because we're starting to see what human beings are like. And we want to be deluded about what God's like. A lot of people make up their own ideas about God. Well, more people make up their own ideas about what human beings are like. We're very prone to being delusional about what human beings are like because we're of that species. (laughs) And you want to think well of yourself, don't you? And from here on in, Exodus is going to confront us with more and more about what people are like. And so far, it hasn't been flattening, flattering. Sinful, hard-hearted, unfaithful, God using. They're not relating to God, they're just using him. I'll take all this stuff, won't even acknowledge your existence. Grumble at every turn. Just me in the wilderness, no matter what God does, they won't listen to him. And that's the tragedy of human existence, because so many people are like that. And if my heart... I let it go that way, I'm like that. And that's pretty important to recognise if I want to get to the end of the journey. We've got to take seriously what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, if any of you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. Today's the day, tomorrow's the day, yesterday was the day. It's always the day to trust in God to provide for you today and to see me get through this day following Jesus, having all I need for the journey and eventually getting there. But there's so much in our hearts and minds and in the society around us that will work against us. And we're going to hear more of that as we keep reading Exodus. Here's a good way to end. Here's what Jesus said, and he was talking about this, about doing the journey, about getting to the the promised land. He said, don't worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all those things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. He's our provider. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Look to the kingdom trust god today to get you there and all these things were given to you as well god promises provisions for the journey is what it said therefore don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself each day has enough trouble on its own friends the warning is whenever you have a day when you get into a pattern of living life as if god doesn't exist for practical purposes god doesn't exist that's where that's where israel was the generation that fell Seek his kingdom, trust in him today, trust in him tomorrow and help each other to do the same. Let's pray for God's help as we uh, walk the journey to the promised land. Loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you give every provision for your people uh, to get through the difficulty of the wilderness to those who trust in you and get to the promised land. Uh, Life can be very, very hard sometimes. There can be all sorts of struggles and if you're not with us in those struggles then they're going to get on top of us and we're not going to make it. Father, we want to ask that you would help us by your spirit to keep trusting in Jesus and keep trusting in you as our good Father in heaven who provides everything we need to get to the promised land. Please help us to live that journey together and to help each other walk that journey together. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.